already such a sweet morning, okay? So the hope, and I said this in our pre-service huddle, uh, and I'll tell you why in just a moment, the hope is that today is a very celebratory day. Family Worship Sunday, uh, we want to be a celebratory thing, not an obligatory thing. Our kids aren't in here because we feel bad for them uh, or because we've run out of kids volunteers or something like that. Uh, our kids are in here because they're people made in the image of God. Uh, Jesus cares deeply, loves our kids deeply, uh, desires for our kids to know and love and enjoy Him. And so we want to take the posture of Jesus toward our children as well, uh, and celebrate. So kids, uh, we celebrate you today. Grateful to God that you're here. Uh, y'all can go ahead and be seated, by the way. Yep. Um, so I want to start uh, by actually involving our kids. So kids, I will need a little bit of help. I'm going to throw some pictures up on the screen, and I'm going to ask you guys if you would be so courageous to raise your hands and tell me what these pictures are. Okay, so when you see the first picture, if you feel like you know what it is, or if you want to take a guess at what it is, just raise your hand, and I'll do my best to call on the first one who does that. Cool? Is that cool? Yep. All right. Here we go. All right. This is the first one. It's a little bit hard to see, but anybody want to take a guess at what this is? All right. Haddon, what do you think, buddy? What do you say? It is the stars. Yep. That's true. That's good. Looking for something a little bit more specific than that, but that's really good. Anybody else? Evan? It is a galaxy. We're getting a lot warmer. Yes, sir. It is outer space. Yep. Yeah. This is good. Yeah. Three, three rides so far. Evan? It is. Yeah, good job, Evan. That was great. All right, Milky Way Galaxy. This is the galaxy that we live in, okay? So, so listen, listen to this. Uh, how long do you guys think, kids or adults can answer this question, how long would it take a person to count every star in the Milky Way Galaxy? Everett? It's a good guess. A thousand, a thousand hundred. Okay, it's a good guess. All right. Uh, is that Zaid in the back? Okay, Zaid, what do you think, buddy? Four. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> 3,168 years is what it would take a person to count every star in the Milky Way galaxy. And that's one galaxy among billions and billions of galaxies that we're not even, that we haven't even discovered yet. Amazing. All right. That's a miracle. Okay. This is a miracle that the Bible would say is one of many things that shows us that there is a God. Okay, that all of what we see uh, is not just random. It's not just uh, uh, something that came out of spontaneous. Like, this is, this is a miracle of God. Uh, second picture. We're going to do one more, and then we'll, we'll get after it. Anybody want to take a guess at what this is? Uh, Cade, what do you think, bud? It is a planet. Yep. Adeline? Adeline? 
Yeah, that's true. That is. It is that. Yep. Okay. That's good. Good job. Uh, Chandler. The sun. It's not the sun. It's all right. Haddon. You've seen this one before, haven't you? Yeah. All right. Okay. <clears throat> this, is, this is the largest volcano on Mars. Okay? Listen to this. This volcano, though you can't tell from the picture, is three times as tall as Mount Everest, the tallest mountain on Earth. It is 72,000 feet tall, okay, which is 13.6 miles tall. Isn't that amazing? Okay, miracles. Like miracles that show us that God exists and that he's powerful and he's big and he's amazing. But none of these miracles even scratch the surface of the one that we're going to talk about today. Okay, so we've been in a series walking through John chapter 14. Adults, now we're going to graft you back in. Uh, we've been in a series through John chapter 14 in which we've been hearing from the words of Jesus uh, words of comfort and consolation for us in the midst of trouble. Okay, so whether you come in today troubled by the world's events or you come in today troubled by what's going on internally in your own heart, the words of John chapter 14 are intended to give God's people comfort and consolation and courage uh, as it pertains to living as followers of Jesus in our present day, okay? And so we talked about the Holy Spirit last week, and this week we're going to talk about resurrection very briefly, what the resurrection of Jesus means. Now, here, here's the tragedy of us as the American church is typically we reserve this kind of sermon for once a year. Okay, what day is that? Easter. Okay, we go really big on the resurrection during Easter, but for some reason we neglect to make it like the most amazing part of every sermon and every church service, the fact that Jesus is alive. Okay, he's alive. He's not, he's not still in the grave. He's not dead. He's, uh, Jesus isn't just a theory or an idea. Jesus is a living, breathing, moving, ruling, reigning king person. He's alive. And so I just want to talk briefly about what that means through our passage. So if you guys will, uh, look, with me, look with me at verse 18, okay? And hey, this is Family Worship Sunday, so it's going to feel a bit like a big living room. That's okay. Okay, so if you're a guest, welcome, glad you're here. This is not every Sunday, but do want you to help us embrace this moment. If our kids move around and do different things, that's okay. It's all part of it. It's going to be sweet, all right? Feel free to help as well, okay? If you see a kid roaming the, I almost said roaming the streets, roaming the aisles, <laughs> feel free to, to lovingly just direct the kid back to uh, their mom and dad, okay? Um, all right, verse 18, this is what Jesus says. He says, uh, I will not leave you as orphans. So I just want us to stop there for a moment. Really, really sweet that Jesus uses the word orphans. He could have used a lot of words, a lot of descriptions, but he chose that specific word. Why? Why did Jesus use the word orphans? Because God has a tremendous heart for the orphan. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, we see this theme over and over and over again, that the heart of God, the one who who made the volcano on Mars, the one who created the Milky Way galaxy, this tremendous, magnificent, powerful God has a, uh, a beating heart for the orphan. Here are a couple of facts about orphans. The majority of the world's orphans have families who are merely unable or unwilling to care for the child. 
Okay, in 2015, so this is taken in 2015, several years ago, so we, we, can, we can, I think, um, make an educated guess that this number has probably only gone up over the years. In 2015, 140 million orphans were alive globally. 17.9 million orphans who have lost both parents and living in orphanages or on the streets and lack the care and attention required for healthy development. 17.9 million children uh, are without both parents. Living in orphanages, living on the streets, 140 million orphans, that could be categorized as, as children who have lost one parent or, or both parents. So why does Jesus use this word? Because God heart, God's heart beats for the orphan. He fights for the orphan. He defends orphans. He delights to save the orphan. And here's what's sweet about this passage specifically. Okay? Uh, Jesus, the word, doesn't just mean literal orphan, uh, but it actually carries a broader connotation than that. In Ephesians 1, verse 5, we're told that God predestines us. Who is us in that passage? Anybody want to take a guess? Who's, who's, who's us in that passage? Christians, right? Those who, who, by God's grace, have put their trust in Jesus, who follow Jesus. It says that God predestines us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Like, adoption, as one person said, is the most unnecessary doctrine in the Bible. It's one thing for God to make us right with him as sinners through faith in Jesus. It's quite another thing for God to adopt us as sons and daughters. That God is not just our Lord and Savior. He's our Father. So God's heart beats for the orphan, both literal and spiritual. But this particular word that Jesus uses, in, or that John uses in John chapter 14, carries a broader, broader connotation than just uh, orphan. It actually could also mean one without friends. I will not leave you as orphans, or I will not leave you as one without friends. So maybe this morning, you come in, and you're not a literal orphan, but maybe you come in lonely and desiring of a friend. I mean, I think loneliness is probably something that many of us struggle with much more than we think we do. Do you know that Jesus is not just your Lord, though he is? He's not just your king, though he is. He's not just your savior, if you are in him by faith. But he is friend. He's our, he's our greatest friend. Exodus thirty-three eleven says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Isn't that amazing? John 15, 15 through 17, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Three times in that text, it's like Jesus really wants to get across to us that, that we are to relate to him as all of the things I mentioned above and to know him as friend. Do you know Jesus as friend? Who, who is Jesus a friend to? Psalm 25, verse 14 says, God is a friend to those who fear him. Okay, so being born, it's for our kids and our adults, being born doesn't automatically make you and I a friend of God. Okay, it doesn't automatically make you and I right with God. 
for the adults in the room, just because you grew up in the church, that does not necessitate or mean that you actually have a relationship with God. What, what makes us a friend of God? What makes us a child of God? It's God's grace through those or in the hearts of those who fear him, who take refuge in him, who trust in Jesus, who look not to themselves for their own salvation, who look not to their own efforts for the forgiveness of their sins, but who abandon their efforts and cling to Jesus. Those are the ones that God says, this is my friend. So Jesus' heart is turned toward the orphan and the lonely. He did not just come to make sinners right with God, but to lay his life down for his friends, that we might be with him where he is forever. What might it look like for you this week? I just want you to consider these questions. What might it look like for you this week to come to Jesus as a friend? To see your time praying to him as a time of dinner with a friend? To confide in him and lament to him and cry with him as a friend? He cares more deeply and more profoundly about you and your problems than even you do. Jesus is our greatest friend. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. So what he tells his disciples. Uh, and how does uh, Jesus not leave us as orphans? And this will be the remainder of our time. Verse 19, he says, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Okay, so Jesus says, on that day, you will know that I am in the Father, you and me, and I in you. That basically is Jesus saying, on this particular day that I'm talking about, you're going to know that I'm God. Okay? So, kids in the room, uh, what do we know about Jesus? We can name a lot of different things that we know about Jesus that, that we think are fascinating about Jesus. But the most profound thing that you and I have to know about Jesus is that he's God. He's not just a teacher. He's, he's not just a leader. He's not just somebody who, who came along and showed us how to live a good life. Jesus is God. And he's telling us here, telling his disciples here, that on this particular day he's talking about, they're going to know that he is God, that he is in the Father, and that the Father is in him. So what day is Jesus uh, talking about? Is he talking about the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come on God's people uh, in Acts chapter 2? Is this the day of Jesus' return when he establishes the new earth? Um, I want us to notice the words, uh, I and you. Okay, so it is Jesus himself who will come, he says. And it's these first disciples by whom he will come to. So adults, we've talked about this. It's easy for us to read ourselves in the Bible, into the Bible too soon. Okay, and to forget the fact that when Jesus was, was saying these words, he was speaking to specific people. Doesn't mean it does not apply to you and I. It's, it's the word of God. It's living and active. It's applicable and, and, and uh, for all of life and godliness. But he was speaking to the disciples. So what day is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the day of his resurrection from the dead. He's looking at, at his disciples and he's telling them, you're about to experience the most significant loss you've ever experienced when I die. They've come to love Jesus, treasure Jesus, not want to ever be without Jesus. And Jesus is telling them there is a day coming that I'm going to be taken away from you, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
I will come to you. These are sweet, consoling, comforting words of Jesus, and he's talking about his resurrection from the dead. All right, so kids, I'm going to try to rein you back in for a second, okay? What does it mean, do you think, that God raised Jesus from the dead? Any of our kids want to answer that one? What does it mean that God raised Jesus from the dead? Chandler? Yeah, that he died for our sins. That's great. Yes. What else? Does it mean that God raised Jesus from the dead? Yes, sir. Yeah, Cade? Yes, that's great. Yeah, he saved us from our sins. Yeah. Adeline? Down on the cross? Yeah. Yeah. He couldn't have risen if he didn't die first, right? So that's really good. Anything else? Does it mean that God raised Jesus from the dead? All right. Here, here's what uh, we talk about often with your mommies and daddies, what uh, we hope for you and what we hope for ourselves as adults in the room. Okay, are you guys ready? Most of us in the room who are familiar with church at all or familiar with the Bible at all can list off all the reasons that it's important that God raised Jesus from the dead, but I want us to feel it. Like, I don't want us to just know it and to be able to academically list off all of the reasons that it's important that God raised Jesus from the dead and mentally, like that's really important. I'm not neglecting the mind. I'm also just saying we, we have to incorporate the heart into this. We need the Holy Spirit of God to help us really believe this thing. Because if Jesus is not alive, then you have every reason in the world, and I do too, to look out at the news and say there's no hope for us. But if Jesus is alive, that we, more than anybody else in the world who claim to follow him, have all the hope in the world to rejoice in the midst of it, to have hope in the midst of it, to not lose heart, to not give up, to keep pressing on and keep waking up and putting on our shoes and going to work and engaging our neighborhood and doing all and parenting and staying in our marriages and doing all the things that God has told us to do if Jesus is alive. It changes everything everything. And so I just want to give three reasons that it's significant that Jesus rose from the dead, that God raised Jesus from the dead, and then I'm going to pray and we're going to be done. All right. Number one, uh, it shows us that Jesus is God. He says, on that day, disciples, you will know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's what he said. When you see me alive, not as a spirit, but in a body, Right? Jesus ate fish with Peter on the beach. He wasn't just a spirit. But when you see me alive, you'll know that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. I am God. This is what the resurrection shows us. He is God. There is no other. There is no other way. The second thing is it shows us that Jesus has defeated sin. Jesus has defeated sin. This is an absolutely wonderful reality for you and I. It tells us that for those of us in the room who rest the hopes of our salvation into Jesus and his finished work on our behalf, 
Those who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus as Savior, your sin could not be more taken care of than it is right now in this moment. Everything you've ever done, every heinous thing you've ever done, every wicked thing that you've ever thought, every, every single moment that you've given into temptation again, and not just that, but everything that you will do tomorrow, every single sin has been forgiven in full because of what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection. Do you believe that? Would you trust that today? Like, think of the freedom that that would bring you and I for us to live as if our sins have been completely forgiven. That there's nothing else that you could do. Nothing you could add on to. It's all been done. A true Christian is not going to hear that and say, great, now I get to go sin. Right? A true Christian is going to hear that and they're going to say, I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, want to kill indwelling sin in my life because it's already been taken care of in full at the cross. The resurrection shows you and I that you and I, by the power of the Spirit of Jesus living in us, can fight sin, that we're not enslaved to sin, and that it's not by our own willpower that we pick our bootstraps up and just try to do better to fight sin. It's by the resurrected Jesus in us, the Holy Spirit of God in us by which we fight sin. That's what the resurrection shows us, that Jesus has defeated sin. It's defeated sin. The second thing is the resurrection shows us that Jesus has defeated Satan. This is also great news. Like, I was in a conversation with somebody recently uh, talking about uh, uh, the war in Israel and the initial videos that came out uh, from the Hamas attack were just horrific. Absolutely. And, And so the question arising in our mind is, how could such evil exist? It's because Satan exists. Like, what further proof do you and I need to look out at the, the atrocities that happen in a situation like that and not believe in a Satan? Not believe in the, real, the realness of good and evil in the world. Satan exists. And Jesus came, 1 John says, to destroy the works of Satan. How did Jesus destroy the work of Satan? Through the resurrection. He rose from the dead, thereby defeating the power of Satan so that you and I can do what Paul tells us to do in Ephesians chapter 6, and we can clothe ourselves with the full armor of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizing that you and I live in the midst of spiritual warfare. We've shared this story a lot. When we first planted the church, like just chaos ensued. And because I'm a Baptist, I was like, yeah, it's probably not spiritual warfare. It's no offense to Baptists. We just have to laugh at ourselves sometimes. And we have to recognize the reality of spiritual warfare. You and I live in the midst of it. The enemy wants our marriages. He wants our children. He wants our lives. He wants our church. And so you and I rest in the hope that through the resurrection of Jesus, Satan has already been defeated. And one day when Christ returns, he'll be forever vanquished. And then the last thing is because of the resurrection, you and I, can stare death in the face and lament, but not be crushed. He came to defeat sin. He came to defeat Satan. And then in his resurrection, he defeated death. This is the last enemy of God to be defeated. But we can know today and every day, Jesus gives us moving forward that death for those who trust in and treasure Jesus is not the end, but the gateway to the most full and happy life any of us will ever know. Death does not get the final word. 
Satan does not get the final word. Sin does not get the final word. And it's all, friends, because of the resurrection. It's all because of the resurrection. So I just want to end with this quote. This is from J.R. Tolkien. Anybody a Lord of the Rings fan? Half of Redemption Hill. Come on, guys. It's a wonderful way to spend 12 hours of your day uh, watching those extended editions. Uh, J.R. Tolkien, the author of the books, uh, coined this word, eucatastrophe. Here's how he defines eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe is the joy in a sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth found in a good ending not expected. In a good ending not expected, yet utterly consistent with all that went on beforehand. For those of us in the room who are Christians, who have our hope in Jesus, our trust in Jesus alone, you and I can expect an unexpected ending. And when I say that, I mean, when we look out at the world and we see the chaos and we look into our own hearts and we see the chaos and everything feels like it's falling out of place and nothing's in control and everything's only dark all the time and there's no hope for us in the future, we can rest assured that because of the resurrection over 2,000 years ago, there will be another resurrection. Which Jesus returns to make all things new and our bodies are raised into new glorious life with him and with one another forever. We will sit at the wedding banquet with Jesus forever. All enemies will be under his feet at that time. Sin, Satan, death forever. That, that's the hope that you and I look to in the days to come. It only gets better for us, friends. That's why you and I can get up in the morning and we can keep going. I mean, it's all of it because we know by God's grace, that it only gets better for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.